0: If you're enjoying today's podcast, please join Father James Martin and Jamie Marisotis for a discussion on human work, spirituality, and empathy during their virtual live event, Finding Spiritual Meaning in Human Work, on February 14th. Sign up at luminafoundation.org/events. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has issued a personal letter responding to the German abuse report. On this episode, Jerry and I unpack the letter and the testimony from Pope Benedict's lawyers that accompanied it. I'm Colleen Deli, This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry.
1: Good afternoon from a sunny but cold Rome, Colleen. It's been quite a busy day
0: with this letter that we've gotten from Benedict responding to the German abuse report. It just came out today while we're recording on February 8th, so we're going to do our best to unpack all of that for our listeners. Former Pope Benedict has asked forgiveness for his handling of clergy sex abuse cases in the Catholic Church. At 94 years old, the Pope Emeritus recalls that he has had great responsibilities in the Catholic Church, and as such, says all the greater is my pain for the abuses and the errors that occurred in those different places during the time of my mandate. The Pope Emeritus is not admitting to any personal wrongdoing. The retired pontiff's message comes two weeks after a report on his past handling of clergy abuse cases. Two weeks after the release of a report on how sexual abuse cases were handled in the Archdiocese of Munich and Freising, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI responded to the report in a letter dated February 6th, but released by the Vatican today, the 8th. It's a short letter, about a page and a half, and most of it is spent apologizing. Benedict also confirms on the record that he did not write his 82-page testimony to the investigators himself, and he says that the factual error about him attending a 1980 meeting where an abuse case was discussed was not intentional. There was also a legal and more technical appendix that his lawyers drafted that asserted Benedict's innocence, and that accompanied the letter. In his apology, Benedict says, once again, I can only express to all the victims of sexual abuse my profound shame, my deep sorrow, and my heartfelt request for forgiveness. I've had great responsibilities in the Catholic Church. Jerry, this letter comes off as being very, very personal. Do you think Benedict wrote it himself?
1: Actually, physically wrote it, I doubt very much that but maybe he dictated it or something dictated it or approved the final uh, text uh, i would say yes
0: so in this letter benedict gives some details about how his 82 page contribution to the investigators was put together he says he had quote a small group of friends who selflessly compiled on his behalf his 82 page testimony for the munich law firm which he would have been a- unable to write himself we knew some of that but these quote friends who are all lawyers are named in the document that accompanied benedict's letter who are these lawyers
1: Well, one of them teaches here in the Opus Dei universities, an Opus Dei priest, and Mm -hmm. I mentioned him in my report, Mm -hmm. Dr. Stefan Muku. They're all Germans, by the way. There are two other canon law professors, one from uh, one of the universities in Munich. There's a civil lawyer whom I mentioned also last week, Dr. Karsten Brennecke, who belongs to a law firm in Cologne, uh, which really does media law. And in fact, they are, they're handling a case related to Cardinal Vulke, the Archbishop of uh, Cologne.
0: I saw that that last lawyer was an expert in freedom of expression, and I was wondering why they would have thought it was an important thing to have someone who's an expert in freedom of expression on this
1: group. I think what they were looking for really was somebody who was able to anticipate how the media might deal mm. with that report. Got it. You might call him a media advisor.
0: So, Benedict says that these lawyers read and analyzed 8,000 pages of information. What kind of information would that have been?
1: The investigators, the law firm, they sent questions to Benedict regarding four priests whose cases they claimed he mishandled. They sent also background information. In other words, all the information they had on those four cases. And that totaled 8,000 pages. Now, that's quite a quantity of information.
0: How much time did they have to go through all that?
1: Now, I'm not certain when Benedict received the report. I suspect it was somewhere in the, during the second half of November, okay. but I'm speculating here. I do know that they had to reply by Christmas and they actually sent their replies by fifteen, sixteen of December. That's 10 days okay. before Christmas. And they were working against the clock.
0: Right. And just to remind our listeners, we know that the Vatican only heard that Benedict had responded to the German law firm around Christmas Day. So they found out 10 days after the responses to the questions were sent to the German investigators. But Jerry, let's recap for our listeners what led to the initial mistake that Benedict had to correct. There was a meeting in 1980 at the Munich Chancery where the case of an abusive priest was discussed, and the minutes of that meeting showed that Benedict attended it. But his testimony to the investigators said that he wasn't there. So in today's letter and the statement by the lawyers, what did they have to say about how this error was made?
1: Well, there are several things here. They they Mm -hmm. name the lawyer Dr. Korte, who is a canon lawyer, as being responsible for the error in the transcription. It is interesting that the four of them, nobody saw the mistake. And Benedict, who had stated exactly the opposite in his interviews with Peter Seewald, that he didn't spot it. Now, does this mean that Benedict hadn't read the whole text, final text, or didn't spot it? I I, I don't know. I mean, there were Mm -hmm. 82 pages. It's a lot, and they were working against the clock. But uh, Benedict, in any case says he hopes that people will understand that this was not a deliberate attempt at deception, mm-hmm. it was a genuine mistake and an editing error.
0: Yeah, so earlier they said that it was an editing error that was in the press release that was issued on January 24th via Archbishop Gainstein. but it, it raises the question of why this explanation wasn't given earlier why they just said it's an editing error which left all these questions open about you know who's who's editing who read it who put it together
1: well that's a question many people have asked Colleen. but uh, today we have the answer to questions so today we got more information we now get what actually happened
0: benedict's letter also doesn't address kind of the the questionable arguments that he made that we've talked about in past episodes particularly the one that a priest who was exposing himself to minors wasn't abusing them because there was no physical contact. And we brought up the issues with this in our past episodes. But the lawyer's document that accompanied Benedict's letter today does address this. They say that it was their canonical evaluation, which they added into Benedict's statement, that according to the canon law that was in effect at the time, exhibitionism was not named as a crime. And they say that Benedict clearly and explicitly condemned this when he condemned all abuse. What do you make of that?
1: Well, their argument is that they were responding on the legal questions, and they were saying exhibitionism in canon law was not Mm -hmm. identified as a criminal act that had a penalty attached to it in canon law. Now, for legal people, this may have made sense, but I I think for the ordinary public, uh, you would say you don't need canon law to tell you that exhibitionism isn't exactly
0: No, exactly. And for me, I don't really buy this argument that Benedict explicitly condemned it, they said, when he condemned all other forms of abuse. He didn't, like, and he still put his name on these very questionable arguments. I I find this very unsatisfying.
1: As I said, there are many questions that they, they give a three-page response and touch mm-hmm. on some of the bigger arguments that have come into the public light. They don't go blow, blah blow, blow.
0: And they don't touch at all on that argument that we talked about last time about uh, the priest was not…
1: theology of priesthood.
0: Yeah, the theology of priesthood where they said that this priest was not acting as a priest when he was abusing these children.
1: It leaves unanswered several of the criticisms that have been made publicly, some of which mm-hmm. I noted in my article, mm-hmm. in my interview with uh, Father Zollner. But I think it's a weaker part of the, their response that Benedict, yes, uses very specific words to consider it sinful, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not sure that this doesn't still leave open criticisms.
0: Right. And we're going to be hearing a lot more opinions on this. Probably our listeners will have heard more opinions about this by the time the show goes up on Thursday. So we're going to take a short break. And after the break, we'll focus on Benedict's apology. Stay with us.
1: Wir bitten den lebendigen Gott für die Öffentlichkeit um Vergebung für unsere Schuld, ja, für unsere große und übergroße Schuld. Mir ist klar, dass das Wort übergroß nicht jeden Tag, jeden Einzelnen in gleicher Weise meint. Aber es fragt mich jeden Tag an, ob ich nicht ebenfalls heute von übergroßer Schuld sprechen muss.
0: So, Jerry, as we're recording this on February 8th, it's the day that Benedict's letter came out. Already, the headlines in publications around the world is that Benedict has uh, issued an apology, but not made it a personal apology, not taking specific responsibility for certain things. And it's also been criticized that this apology that he wrote that seems very heartfelt on its own was accompanied by this appendix that makes all these legal arguments for his innocence. I guess the first thing I want to ask you is, you know, do you think that accompanying the apology letter with this legal argument, does it take some of the force out of the apology?
1: I think the apology stands by itself, because here you have the first pope who meets victims, mainly during his visits to different countries, saying in fairly clear terms that in the course of these meetings, I've come to understand more. I've come come to understand the terrible wrong that was done Mm -hmm. to the victims, and I I ask their forgiveness. And then it's interesting also that while the letter is titled, Response to the Munich Report." Benedict, in his apology, goes beyond it, and he speaks about that I've had positions of great responsibilities in the Catholic Church. He was archbishop in Munich,
0: five Mm -hmm. years.
1: He was 23 years as prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith.
0: Which we should say is the office that handles these cases.
1: Especially since the year 2001, 2002, is the office that deals with practically all these cases, Mm -hmm. and who saw himself in those years, I think at least 10,000 cases. And then he had the greatest responsibility in the Catholic church when he became Pope. Mm -hmm. So his apology, it's very interesting. He speaks about the errors that occurred in those different places during the time of my Mm mandates. I think this is very powerful because he's covering everything from when he became Archbishop to Mm -hmm. when he abdicated from the papacy. In fact, three days from now will be the ninth anniversary of his abdication. Mm -hmm. And it's extraordinary that nine years after he has resigned from the papacy, he is still having to answer for issues that happened under his watch.
0: This apology has been criticized for not naming specific cases, but do you think this is an admission of guilt on Benedict's part?
1: Benedict is very conscious. Errors and abuse took place on his watch. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's quite striking. I mean, some people will say, well, he didn't apologize for this specific thing and this specific thing and this specific thing. Mm-hmm. It's true. He doesn't apologize for specific abuses on his watch, mm-hmm. but it is a pretty sweeping apology nonetheless, in my estimation. So it's almost uh, an apologia pro vita sua. What does that mean? In An apology for his life in leadership positions in the church. I think the ordinary people will appreciate this. I think those who want to find loopholes will find loopholes. But I think we've seen in dealing with all the cases of the abuse that it's very difficult to satisfactorily answer every specific accusation. I think the the victims, they will be the final judges as to whether, at least in this life, as to whether Benedict's words ring true. And I, I was particularly struck, Colleen, when he goes on to speak and he talks about Jesus in Gethsemane, in the Mount of Olives, before he was crucified. He specifically says
0: he came to appreciate the repugnance and the fear that Jesus felt on the Mount of Olives.
1: And this was in relation to, obviously, the sin of the world. Then he said, but the disciples, they fell asleep.
0: Yeah, so what do you make of this? Is Benedict likening himself to Jesus here or the sleeping disciples?
1: No, I think he's putting himself very clearly among the apostles who, was, who slept. And I, I think it's very clear. And he said, it's still happening today. In other words, there are some pastors who are still sleeping. He sees that the, the successors of the apostles have been sleeping as other people have suffered enormously. That's his message, and there are some still sleeping. I was struck by this as well, that he's very conscious not all the pastors of the church, not all the successors of the apostles are taking their responsibility today. Mm -hmm. And I I think back, you know, to 2005 when John Paul II was almost dying, and there was the Good Friday uh, way of the cross at the Colosseum, and Benedict then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger had written the reflections, the meditations for the way of the cross on Good Friday. And he spoke about the filth of the church. He had inserted into that way of the cross the filth of the church. So I see a connection between that meditation on Good Friday and today's comment in the end of his letter when he speaks about the sleeping apostles when others were were suffering i think uh, one has to go beyond the headlines and read the letter carefully and one will see well this is the old man at almost 95 9 years after resigning from the papacy this is his reflection
0: yeah i think i'm i'm with you on you know the apology does it covers many things even though it doesn't name things specifically i feel like It seems to take some of the force out of it, that it was accompanied by this letter that claimed that Benedict had no fault in this, this letter from his lawyers.
1: They don't say he had no fault in this.
0: They say that the German report, quote, contains no evidence for an allegation of misconduct or conspiracy in any cover up on the part of Benedict. They do seem very intent on Asserting his innocence, and I remember that we talked about, you know, in your interview with Hans Zollner, that he said that he should apologize, but that there was concern that the lawyers would make these kinds of arguments trying to exculpate him, and that I feel like is taking away from the apology.
1: I think there would be some who will read the thing like you are doing now. I would have preferred to have seen the letter and not the appendix. Exactly. But at the same time, if you had just got the letter and there was no answer to the questions, you would have a a barrage of statements from various people saying, ah, but this question wasn't answered, that question wasn't answered. And so they've tried to uh, anticipate the criticisms that would have come for just a letter and nothing else. I think correctly could not go into much detail in the letter. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. the letter would have been distorted completely. He already said a lot in the letter. The thanking various people who helped him, the vast rallying of expressions of trust from around the world that came to him, which obviously was a source of consolation. Which included from Pope Francis. He says, I am particularly grateful for the confidence, support, and prayer that Pope Francis personally expressed to me. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, Francis has been in direct contact with Benedict. This is not something new, it's, Francis often is in contact with Benedict, mm-hmm. not just at Christmas at Easter, but at other times too. And he's always concerned about him. And And so obviously Francis will say, I I imagine that, you know, I knew you were not trying to tell lies.
0: Yeah, I have one more question on this, which is, you know, we talked about the Hulierman case with this 1980 meeting where that was discussed. In 2010 when Benedict was pope and this all came into the public eye, the vicar general of the diocese took responsibility for that oversight. And here we have the lawyers kind of taking responsibility in the same way saying Benedict didn't know. It's hard not to see a parallel there between people taking the fall for Benedict to preserve his innocence. That's not to say that, you know, Benedict isn't seriously innocent, but it's it's just a uh, a striking parallel to me.
1: Colin, you're very sharp, and uh, I think other people will make s- similar comments. I prefer myself to say, look, I take his letter, I take his apology as as being very personal, very mm-hmm. s- uh, honest. I I think it, it is where he's at. Yeah. Look, you remember what Pope Francis said when he was elected Pope? He says, I'm a sinner. Mm-hmm. And since he's been made Pope, he says, we're all sinners. Mm -hmm. Benedict in this letter is very striking he says every priest at the beginning of a Mass says, you know, I confess we all confess, Mm -hmm. we're sinners
0: Yeah, that was actually a part of the letter that I found very moving was that he used these words that we all use to confess at the beginning of Mass he talks about the grievous fault of abuse and says, you know, we have to look at how much each of us might have enabled that abuse, that grievous fault, and then he ends the same way that the prayer ends, by saying, you know, I, I have to ask for you to, to pray for me.
1: He's come to, I think, understand the real gravity of the, the sinfulness and the criminality of the abuse. This is language that, you know, ordinary people in the pew will, will relate to. It's also a message, I think, in another way it can be interpreted as a message to all the successors of the apostles. Mm -hmm. That uh, there's time for examination of conscience and there's time for asking forgiveness.
0: And speaking of time, you know, Benedict is also very aware in this letter that he doesn't have all that much time left. He really, at the end of the letter, takes a look back at his life and, you know, talks about how, how he's feeling about approaching death. He says, quite soon I shall find myself before the final judge of my life. Even though as I look back on my long life, I can have great reason for fear and trembling. I am nonetheless of good cheer, for I trust firmly that the Lord is not only the just judge, but also the friend and brother who himself has already suffered for my shortcomings and is thus also my advocate, my paraclete. So clearly he's thinking about, you know, the end of his life and what this means for him. I wanted to ask you, you know, this letter and I guess this report more broadly, what effect do you think it has on Benedict's legacy? how we tell a story.
1: There is no doubt that this is a chapter that will be part of his history. There's no doubt. But I think at the same time, people will also balance this against the fact that he was the Pope who began decisive action. First, when he was before he was Pope under John Paul II in the in the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith for four years, Mm -hmm. especially. And then as Pope, he took decisive action introducing church laws on which Pope Francis has built. And really, Pope Francis has taken it to another level by insisting that every bishop and every priest has now a responsibility to immediately act on any allegation of abuse. And so, but he, he put the first stones in that building. And I think he, he will be credited for this. You've, you've got something on the credit side and something on the debit side. I think this is true of all of us. And I think uh, that it has it is to his credit, whatever the criticism from the Munich law firm, it is to his credit that he moved the church forward in a big way in tackling the abuse question and ensuring justice for the victims.
0: I think it's interesting too, to think about how this fits into Benedict's final chapter after his resignation. You know, I remember that he published that article that blamed abuse on the sexual revolution. And then there was the book with Cardinal Sarah that he had to have his name removed from. And now there's this report that shows that he mishandled cases. And all of those, while we were analyzing them on the show while they were happening, we said that they showed in some way him being poorly advised, right? But this letter, this apology letter, feels to me like Benedict taking things into his own hands again and doing exactly the right thing that people have been asking him to do, which is to apologize, to acknowledge his faults, and to ask for forgiveness. And at the end of the letter, he seems really at peace with that. So, Jerry, thank you for taking some time to talk with me about this letter and the appendix and continuing to analyze this story week after week. I appreciate getting to talk with you about it.
1: Thank you, Colleen. Uh, I hope our listeners will not just follow the headlines, but read the letter. They can then draw their own conclusions. But I think it's important to read the letter, and I hope we will put it in the show notes.
0: Yes, I will. All right, Jerry, I'll see you next week. our listeners, before we go, obviously this is a developing story, and there were so many more Vatican stories that we weren't able to cover this week. So I'll link to a few of those in the show notes, and you can always check out americamagazine.org for continuing coverage. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Ricardo Da Silva. Audio engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Production assistance from Kara Hanlon and Robert Balisaire at the Jesuit Korea in Rome. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at AmericaMagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's Inside Without the Second I, Vatican Pod. The best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican is by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine. You can do that at America slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli.